guys, Psychology Nerds, and welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of the hosts of Psychology and Stuff, and I am here, as always, with my co-host, my friend, and chair of the UW-Green Bay Psychology Program, Dr. Georgina, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dungess. How's it going, G? Wow, I am doing awesome, although you know, like you've totally just forgot how to say my name, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah. It's the end of the semester. This is why why we struggle. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a hard fail right out of the gate. I, I, I think it's because I normally just call you G. So having to say all those syllables was just too much for my very, very puny overtaxed brain to handle in this moment. <laughs> I get it. In fact, every time I order something like where they ask for my name because they're going to call it out, I just say the letter G. Nice. And, and they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, no, really, just yeah. G. Trust me, just you, go with it. <laughs> start saying G money. Um, I feel like they would really I, I, appreciate that. In certain circumstances, that might actually work. Okay. <laughs> I, um, I think that is a, I think you're doing a real service to people by just saying the letter. I think you're really letting them know like, Hey, I, I understand you too are overtaxed. And so I'm just <laughs> going to give you a letter. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Cause I just don't want to hear them say any sort of mispronunciation over the loudspeaker uh, when I go to pick up whatever it is that I've ordered. <laughs> so it's also a service to yourself. It's, there's a selfish, a selfish, wow, I can't talk at all, a selfish motivation <laughs> that uh, behind it. Excellent. Absolutely. Well, we better get to our guests before we mess up any more. Yes. <laughs> I agree. I'm going to say it. So I'm going to do an introduction in just a second. I'm going to say, though, that I've been thinking a lot about our guest lately because we are we have just kicked off um, Mental Health Awareness Month. And while grief is not necessarily something that we should be sort of lumping into the category of mental illness, and I'm sure that's something she will talk about, um, it is worth noting that I think a lot of the things we're going to talk about today are, are are broader than just issues of grief and that we can think of them as relevant in uh, other types of issues of loss, other types of conditions as well. So that is my, my teasing of our guest a little bit. Are we ready to get to her? Let's do it. Okay. Um, I had more to say about mental health awareness month, but I'm going to save it for the end. So there you go. Um, we'll, we'll come back. Our guest today is a thanatologist in the psychology department at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. And if you don't know what a thanatologist is, I didn't either until I met her. She studies death, dying, and bereavement. Her current research interests are college student grief, grief in social media, and the effects of bereavement camps as a form of grief intervention for children who have experienced the death of a loved one. She is the founder and director of Camp Lloyd, a summer camp for grieving children. She has a TEDx talk titled Death Lives Online. You can find it and we will post it along with this episode. It's Dr. Eileen Cupid. How are you, Eileen? I am doing okay and you can call me I. I. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Very good. And uh, you know what I didn't mention in your, your intro, I, is that we just did... Um, you were just a speaker at the No Reservations talk, uh, which is also available for people to watch. And I will include that link. You're talking about this very thing or talking about the, the bereavement camp, Camp Lloyd, as well as issues related to grief more generally. And that was really fun. 
I loved talking with you. It was fun. Good. Yeah, that was great. So what I really was hoping to do today, because uh, so Georgina and I have known that we wanted you to come on the show for actually like eight months now. We've been talking oh. about how we wanted to end our season uh, with yeah. an interview. How with appropriate. You. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, you're, this is a trick. We're going to get you back next year because you've always told me you're our womb to tomb person. So we're starting with the tomb. And at the beginning of next season, we'll bring you back for the womb stuff. <laughs> okay. so, so but something you said during the no reservations talk, I thought would be really, really, really a great way for us to talk about this. And it was specifically um the conversation sort of about do's and don'ts regarding people you know who are grieving. And I, I want to spend some time unpacking what you said, which at the time, you know, we talked about it really quickly. I thought we could expand it a little bit here to talk a little bit about, so what do you do if you've got a loved one uh, who, is, who is grieving? What are some ways to handle that? Um. Well, I, there's a number of things that you can do. And I, I guess the overall theme is walk with that person on their journey. Um, don't, don't take another path because you don't know what to say to them. And I think that that is more the typical um, way in which people behave after we have our funeral rituals, and thank goodness we still have those, they were disrupted by the pandemic, and that created a lot of problems, because people feel at least obligated to come to the funeral, and then they'll offer a hug, or they'll say something. But then what happens afterwards is that awkward silence. And quite honestly, that's when people need you the most, because when people are acutely feeling the grief. There, many people are in such a state of psychological numbness that they don't know whether, whether they're coming or going. And then there's a lot of times there's so many arrangements that one has to do. There's so much stuff that you have to do in order to pull off the, you know, what you do with the body, what you do with the, um, with the funeral service. How, how do you conduct yourself? It's the long period afterwards where people are trying to integrate what happened, this loss that happens in life, that there could be silence from what one's formerly known support group was considered to be. And I don't think that people are avoiding the mourner because they're being mean or they don't want to be their friend anymore. People avoid them because they don't know what to say and they don't want to know what to do. And that's because we're such a highly uneducated society with regard to death. We don't have the words. Yes, we send a sympathy card because that provides some words. Um, we'll say things like, call me if you need me. And, and I harp on this a lot. People are not going to call you, okay? They're just not going to do that because if that's uncomfortable, you don't want to make them more and more uncomfortable than they are. So you can say things like, I'm sorry. Um, um, and just ask them, how are you? How are you doing? Okay, can I, can I come over and spend some time with you? We can just watch TV together. Um, we can just sit around and have a cup of tea or coffee. And you don't have to say much. 
even if there are those long periods of silence, it is appreciated. Just the physical presence of somebody is so appreciated. And instead, we stay away. Um, so I think that that is the most important thing. And this always troubles me. I, I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to upset her. What? She doesn't know that her <laughs> loved one died? Oh, really? Oh, I, I'm such a, oh, really? They died? You know, of course they know that. Acknowledge the person, that this person lived, you know? So um, uh, it, it's, it's kind of strange when you think about that. I didn't want to bring up his name because I didn't want to upset her. Um, you can't upset that person any more than they were. You can make them mad at you, but you can't upset them anymore. So, and I think about a lot of times, um, well, in, in my grief experiences, people send cards and they, you know, they say the typical like thoughts and prayers are with you, that kind of thing. And uh, a few people, a few of my friends actually called me and they said, you know what? I was thinking about you, like not just my thoughts were with me. I was thinking about you and I was remembering the time that you and your dad or, you know, whoever was the person that passed away. I remember when you guys went sledding with us and it was hilarious and we laughed and it was really fun. And I just wanted to share that memory because I was thinking about you. I thought that that was the coolest thing. Like, to say or do, and you could even write something like that into a sympathy card rather than just saying, you know, thinking of you, like, no, actually I'm thinking about you in this way. And it was really a great, happy, fun memory. And I'm actually like smiling, even though I know we're all sad too. Yeah, that's, um, you know, you're acknowledging that this person existed and by doing that and by keeping those memories alive, those shared memories alive, you know, you in some ways you're continuing the relationship with the person. That is an absolutely excellent thing to do, to share a memory like that. Uh, I think that one of the most important things not to do is to say, I know how you feel, which is we are all very tempted to go there and do not go there, put a clamp on your mouth, because you do not, even if you have had a similar death experience, you still do not know how that person feels. Sometimes the person, him or, you know, they don't know how they feel. So how could you know how they feel? And it's, it's not appreciated. That is something that is not appreciated. Yeah, and it's interesting because even if you, it seems to me, even if you could make the argument that the person really did know how the other person felt, it still wouldn't be the right thing to say, right? It, it just, because it, in many ways, it sort of takes a little bit of the focus off the person and puts it, it, it makes it about you, you know, as, and so, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, um, and this is where earlier when I was referencing some of the, the, the mental health awareness, month and, and being there to support people who are suffering in any way. I really don't think I know how you feel 
does very much for people in most circumstances. I really think it ends up taking the focus off of off of them and putting it on you and sort of making it more about your experiences than about theirs. And so, um, you know, I think that's one of those um, uh, kind of go tos that people use that, as you said, is is often not appreciated. Yeah, it's trying you're trying to express empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's, that's one that is just not appreciated. It's, it's like you're taking away that person's ownership of their own grief. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you're right, placing it back on, on to them. And, you know, from the standpoint of somebody who's trying, trying to support a mourner, mm-hmm. many times these kinds of deaths um, exacerbate one's own feelings of loss. And so we have a need as somebody who's trying to support the mourner to express our own stories of loss, Mm -hmm. but that is not the appropriate context in which to do that. Right. Well, I think the way you phrased it right out of the gate there, like be with them on their journey uh, or walk with them on their journey, I think you said is, I, I mean, to me, that's, is just a really important message, like be there for them and make sure they know you're there for them. And sometimes that's not really doing very much, right? Like sometimes that's not like trying to make them feel better. It's not, you know, some of those things that oftentimes are, are really, um, feel really misguided of putting it into perspective is a way people, uh, another thing I think people tend to do of like, well, at least, they didn't suffer any longer, or at least they had a good long life. Like those aren't things that make me feel better, even if they're true. Yeah, I, I loved when my mother died. A number of people, she was 96 when she died. She was a pretty unhappy woman for most of her life. And people would say to me, she had a long, wonderful life. And I just wanted to deck them. It's <laughs> you know, like, no. She didn't, she was, she didn't have such a great life. And um, you don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was more hurtful than helpful at that point in time. So I think in terms of what we call death education, I think we need to give people the words and the verbiage um, to, that, that is more appropriate or to give them permission not to say much, but maybe to do. So if you come over to somebody's house and you see the dishes piled up in the sink, you know, go wash them. Don't put them away for that person. I hate when people do that and stuff things in cabinets and they don't know where they go, but you can wash the dishes. You can, do you want me to water your plants? They're kind of looking a little saggy. You know, find something because a lot of stuff gets neglected. Um, and those are the kinds of things that could be helpful. You don't have to say much, but do mention the deceased by name. Again, acknowledge that this was somebody who walked on this planet that made some kind of impact in one way or another and will be remembered. That is a huge one for people. I don't want them. I don't want to forget this person. So I wonder if there's a, time limit to um, 
to the and you you talked a little bit about time in your no reservations talk but um you know, like but especially when i think about like at work and my co-workers like uh a lot of people would ask like right after a death of a loved one you know like how are you doing and, and like acknowledge it but then like a week later no one ever asks again and so i wonder like, is that something that you should ask about, you know, like how often, how far out is too far out to mention it? Do you have any thoughts about that? I don't think it's ever too far out. You know, um, Mother's Day is coming up. I, you know, if you can say, you know, I, re I remember your mother. Um, uh, there's no time limit on when a person grieves. Rather, it comes in waves, it comes and goes. Certainly a week after the death, it's more than appropriate to bring it up. Um, I think a lot of times we have to take the cues from the griever, him or herself, because sometimes people just are not in the mood to talk about it. They're tired of talking about it. It doesn't hurt to go in and say, how are you doing? You know, um, and again, do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to go out for coffee? If it comes out naturally, then you talk about that. We tend to be, as a culture, very hung up about time. Um, and it's difficult because there's a lot of ambiguity with regard to that in the, in the US today. In, in the olden days, as my students would say, you know, we had these very specific rituals that, you know, 30 days, this happens, six months, this happens, a year after the death, this happens, okay? And if nothing else, that's when it would be appropriate to bring these things up. We don't have those kind of rituals anymore. And so it does make it difficult to, to figure out when do you bring this up? But I think it's most appropriate to take the cues from the person who is grieving and being sensitive to, to that. I think that sort of speaks to my next question or the next thing I was wondering, but I, I, um, I wonder sometimes, well, I'll tell, tell a quick story. So I, when I was in graduate school, I had a, a classmate whose father had died. Um, and we, we did what a lot of groups do in those circumstances. And we started making her dinner every night for her and her husband. And we, we brought dinner over every night for a couple weeks. It maybe didn't last that long. But uh, interestingly, at, at one point, I started to feel like it was becoming more of a burden to her than it was helpful, that I got the sense that maybe she actually would rather we stopped, but she was being maybe a little too polite to say anything. And so, um, in, in shortly after that, why it didn't last that long is she pulled the plug on it. She sent an email out and said, hey, everyone, I really appreciate this, but I think we're good now or, or something like that. And so I guess my that was a long way of me getting to the question, which is, how do we how do we know when maybe our attempts at help have become burdensome where, where maybe the person doesn't want to take walks or doesn't want any more visitors or you know and how do, how do we how do we know when that's happened you know 
I think the easiest thing to do is to ask them. <laughs> They're not going to fall apart and say, you know, I, you could, I, I guess what I would do is I would say, you know, a lot of times when I'm really upset, I need some alone time. And so I will not be offended if you tell me that, you know, you just need some space right now. And I would be happy to honor that. Or if you don't want me to bring over meals anymore, maybe we can do something else in the future. Um, but asking them is, is probably the easiest thing to do. I remember very clearly when my father died. Um, my father was living with my brother. So I came in and I'm of the Jewish faith and in Judaism, you do it differently than the, the Christian ways. You have the wake and the visitation before. In Judaism, you do the burial and the funeral, and then you do something called sitting Shiva, which Shiva is Hebrew for seven. So for seven days in the Orthodox tradition, the family's not supposed to do anything and people are supposed to come over and they're supposed to visit and bring food and spend time with you and just let you sit and reflect. Well, the more contemporary view is to do it for three days. Well, we had a steady stream of people coming to my brother's house. And some of them were having such a good time um, because people would bring food and they wouldn't bring nourishing food. And here's another thing that I want to mention. Grieving people need to drink, to hydrate. And I don't mean with booze, okay? <laughs> they need water, they need good nutritious food, not the cookies and candies and cakes that were brought over to my brother's house. But I remember it's 10 o'clock at night and we were exhausted. And it's like, I kept on thinking, go, would you guys please go? I just need to be alone a little bit. And so, there, there was some great insensitivity on, on their part. So you have to respect the person's privacy too. And I just think the easiest way to do it is saying, would you like us to leave now? You look tired. That would be the easiest thing to say. I also um, like in, in thinking about sort of traditions and, and what have you, one of the greatest gifts I think is social media. And I know you've done some research on um, how maybe grieving people use social media in different ways. But one of the great things about it is that it cues me to my friends' important dates. Like, oh, it's been one year since my mother passed away or, you know, coming up on a big thing. That is such a gift because it gives me a, a cue that I can appropriately and, and really well reach out. Um, how is social media impacting grief and, and grieving? I think that social media has changed the whole landscape. Um, I think that it's, it, there has, I think that there has been a quite a profound revolution in terms of the way in which we relate to death, um, because it doesn't happen face to face, but it does happen on social media. As a matter of fact, when you were talking about 
the importance of co-constructing history of the person who has died by shared memories, that's what happens on Facebook because, or other forms of social media. You post a picture and it was, dad, it was five years ago since you died. I miss you so much. And I remember when we used to go for walks along the beach and somebody else posts, your dad was such a special person. And I remember the kindness he did to me when he helped me fix my kitchen cabinets. And there's a whole history that gets co-constructed this way. And people are so comfortable talking about death and loss and about their emotions and feelings when they can be alone in the dark of their room. There is just a computer monitor. Nobody is looking over their shoulder. They don't feel judged which they might be, but they don't feel judged. And this is where the discourse takes place. Um, uh, And it's just amazing to me. People post pictures of their loved ones. People put on poetry. People will blog if there's a long dying process. They will blog the dying process. There is so much content and individual content in, um, online. It is amazing what people do. And this is where we get our social support now, more so than anywhere else. And this is permissible. Whereas it's not permissible to say something to somebody face-to-face, it's permissible online. Yeah. You know, so, Curious. One thing you and I have not yet talked about as we've all, all of the years of having these conversations, one of the things that just occurred to me as you were telling some, some stories there is like, what advice might you have for people who are grieving? Um, you know, so not so much people around the grievers, but the person themselves, what, what suggestions might we have for them in, in navigating what can be obviously emotionally complicated? Um, I think the most important thing that I could tell people is to, that they, they can't avoid it. And grief takes time and it has many faces and that people do not grieve in stages, okay? Stop trying to fit yourself into a stage so that if you're not reaching acceptance, then you're grieving wrong. You're grieving in an unhealthy way. People are very concerned about failing grief 101. Nobody is grading you, or maybe somebody is grading you. They say, oh, I think you're grieving in an unhealthy way. Um, People have, there has been research, this is evidence-based, people grieve, have different grieving styles. So some people are what we call instrumental grievers. And that is, they don't cry. They don't emote. They don't need social support. They need to be alone. They tend to withdraw. They tend to engage more in physical activity. Okay. I am upset. I'm going for a run. Okay. Um, They don't they, they tend to cope by distraction. 
okay? I am going to clean the house. I am going to rebuild the engine of my car. Whatever it is that they do, it's much more of a um, activity-based kind of form of grief. And people watch these people. They go to work. They do everything that they need to do at work. They keep their griefs, grief and their emotions to themselves. And those are the people that we say, I don't think they're grieving in a healthy way. He doesn't want to talk about it. He seems he's, he's engaged in all these activities. If that's the way you are, there's nothing wrong with that. That is your grief style. The one that we tend to celebrate, which goes back to the earliest days of Freud. He wrote a book in 1917 called Morning, not the time of day, but Grief Morning and Melancholia. And melancholia is an old fashioned word for depression. Um, and that he basically laid out that the only way in which you can resolve this grief, okay, he called a decathect, was by bringing up all the memories of that person, okay, and talking about that person incessantly. And it's through that discourse that you emotionally detach. And that became the healthy model for the way in which somebody's supposed to grieve. Okay, you're supposed to emote, you're supposed to engage in discourse. And if you don't, you fail grief 101. That is not what people do. Some people do do that. And that's what they need to do. But other people don't. And so I think it's really important to accept who you are as you grieve. Now, of course, there are some people that encounter difficulty. Okay. Um, but the research seems to show that that's something about 50%, 15% of the population is at risk for complications of their grief. Most people are resilient and get through it. They just need to know you will be okay. This is horrible. And I'm so sad for you, but you will be okay. And I think that that's something that we need to help people to understand. I also think it's such a strange thing to label people as healthy or unhealthy grievers. And we had a conversation earlier about the DSM uh, revision and a new category. And um, so I wonder if you have any thoughts about like, should, should we as just friends and loved ones of, of grievers, should we be judging their grief as healthy or not healthy? <laughs> um, I call it the grief police. Don't be the grief police. You have not written the book about grief. Now, the whole um, issue with the DSM, and I was just listening to a session that um, from the Association for Death Education and Counseling on this. This is highly controversial. Never before in all the five editions of the DSM has grief and bereavement ever been considered to be a diagnostic category. And there's many reasons for it, but perhaps the main reason is that 
This is not a disorder. This is normal human experience. We don't put being lovesick as a DSM diagnostic <laughs> category that is going to need psychotherapeutic help. Okay. And that's what we, so the revision of the DSM-5, so it's undergoing revision now, they're calling it the DSM-5-TR. They included a new category and they're calling it prolonged grief disorder. And basically there's um, a number of diagnostic characteristics, but the major ones are this intense, very intense yearning and intense pining um, and intense inability to go forth with one's life. They persist for at least a year. Are there people that experience this? Yes. But again, by calling it prolonged grief disorder, does it put the emphasis on time again? Okay. By calling it a disorder, are we medicalizing grief? Okay. Why can't we call it complicated grief? That grief is complicated no matter what, but when we call it complicated grief, we're acknowledging that there are, is an interweaving and intertangling of a number of factors that is making it difficult for a person to manifest their resilience, their natural resilience. And the other big concern is, see now what happens is that with this diagnostic category, you can get medical, you can get insurance reimbursement. So you're grieving, now you can go, whereas before, if you were sad over a loss, you could not get reimbursement um, from a therapy, from the insurance company if you go to see a therapist, unless they said you had major depressive disorder or something like that. But, you know, an honorable therapist is, is going to say, hey, you know, you're grieving that, you know, that makes sense. So now you can get the help that you need. Why do people have to wait a whole year to get help? That's another thing. Why, if four months later, you're still super sad, does it hurt to go talk to somebody? Well, you're not going to go do that if you have to shell out a lot of money to do that. And then by calling it a disorder, are we telling people who are grieving that they are disordered, that there's something pathological about them? And then the pharmaceutical companies, does that mean that I can medi you know, you know, medicalize my grief away? Give me my most happy pills. Um, there's all kinds of issues that are tied into this that um, are problematic. So there's, there's a lot of discussion that's going on. On the other hand, people do need help. There are people that do need help and right. they should get it. And there are people that would benefit from medication um, and they should get it. But to come up with this blanket diagnostic category is a little concerning. Yeah, I mean, I, I, a couple of thoughts I had. One is I, I think everything you're describing, I mean, it, it, these are all of the problems of the DSM 
oh, yeah. rolled in rolled into one sort of perfect example of of the flaws in the way we're th- we've been thinking, and not just the problems of the DSM, but the problems of the politics surrounding the DSM and more. And I mean, this is this is an egregious example uh, of all of that. Um, and it, and of course, like anything else, there certainly are going to be examples of people who grieve in an unhealthy way. And, and I don't mean holding it in when they should be expressing it. I mean, like self-injury, you know, substance abuse, that, things like that. There are going to be examples of people who do things in a way that is, is harmful to them that we would want to be the subject of, of clinical attention. But this doesn't get us there. And, and also, um, you know, and, and so, and also, I mean, your point about having to wait a whole year is the, like the, the notion that it becomes pathological in 12 months, but it's not pathological or it couldn't possibly be pathological before that is, is, you know, bananas. And it is, but it is also how the DSM operates in a host of other ways too, are attempts to categorize and classify based on observable symptoms just does not work the way we want it to, uh, or the way they want it to, I should say. Yeah. Um, it, you know, in, on one hand, it does call attention that grief is a significant mm-hmm. dimension that's some, that needs to be attended to when we start talking about mental health. Um, and that is a very good thing, but you're right. I mean, it's it's grief by committee. Um, I had mentioned to Georgina, one of my um, co- G, sorry, one of my colleagues at the Association for Death Education and Counseling quoted somebody as saying, um, "What is the definition of a camel?" Um, and that is oh, a horse that was designed by a committee, and. I think that, that that is what happens here. On the other hand, I think that when I look through all the diagnostic categories that are in the DSM, not all of them, but many of them, such as anxiety and depression in particular, it bothers me how little is mentioned about how grief feeds into this. Um, And I'll give you one example. I just wrote a paper about Abraham Lincoln, who I didn't know this, but a lot of people didn't know that he suffered from pretty significant depression. He was even suicidal. He had wrote poetry that was dripping with suicidal ideation. Um, And for many decades, historians neglected this very significant aspect of his character. Nobody really talks about why was this man so seriously depressed? Well, first of all, there was a family history of it. So biologically, he might've been prone. But in addition, his mother died when he was nine years of age and he witnessed her death. His favorite aunt and uncle died at around the same time. His older sister who took care of him died in childbirth when he was 18. One of the women who he purportedly fell in love with died from typhoid fever when he was in his 20s. And then he had four sons and three of those sons died in their childhood from various illnesses. 
Well, I would be depressed too from all of that. And that needs to be acknowledged. I think looking at that, you can just say as far back as we understand, look at what childhood bereavement did to somebody like Abraham Lincoln. And yet he manifested great resilience by becoming one of the most significant historical figures in the history of the United States. It's a great example. And I think that we see that resilience uh, in college students. Uh, you recently wrote a, a paper about college student bereavement and, uh, and, and, and all sorts of things. When you work with the kids, younger kids at Camp Lloyd, I think, I think what I would love to like end this episode or, or think about at the end of the episode is that um, we all will experience grief. Like that is just a given, um, but we all also have within us the ability to be resilient. Would you agree with that? I, I certainly would. Um, I could recommend a book. Hold on. This is a book I had my students read. It's by George Bonanno. Oops, it disappeared. Ha, there it is. It's called The Other Side of Sadness. And it's all about um, resilience and grief. And, you know, we, this is part of our biological makeup. We are, if you love, you will grieve. The two are two sides of the same coin, okay? And it is definitely worth it to love, even at the risk of that loss. You know, we know, we know that when we adopt a pet and we fall in love with our pets, we know that they have a limited lifespan, but isn't it so worth it to have them for the time that you have them? And I think we should look, about, look at that way for everybody that we love, that we're lucky to have them, we're lucky to love them for however long we love we have them. That's a gift. That Absolutely. is a very nice way to end. Eileen, thank you so, so much for being here. Um, let's see, G, do you have anything you want to add as we finish up? No? Nope. I, I think that that was a great place to end. So thank you, Eileen. <laughs> it was. So I want people to check us out uh, at Psych and Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And what we are going to do in those places uh, is share some of Eileen's work, her TEDx talk, her, um, her the, the no res from the other night, uh, no reservations talk, all those things uh, will be shared there as we, uh, along with this episode. So check things out there. Um, that is also a good place to ask questions, request topics for episodes, um, contribute, yes, contribute in other ways. So um, the only other thing I would say is that, gee, this is our last episode of the season. So we've got a couple of months we're taken off. Um, Still follow us on social, though, because we're going to reshare and remind people of some of our past episodes. I think last summer, maybe the summer before, we did a couple of uh, just fun videos randomly. We, I might encourage us to do that again, G. So. Yep. So you'll have to stay on social media and follow us so that yes. you'll, you'll know when that happens. And while we're taking a hiatus, Eileen uh, will be uh, doing Camp Lloyd. And right. I, I failed to mention that um, if 
if you know a child who is grieving between the ages of help me Eileen seven, seven and 14, 14 seven and 14 years old um, please do check out the Camp Lloyd website uh, for ways in which you can get in contact with Camp Lloyd so um, yeah. so while we're off uh, uh, doing our thing Eileen will be uh, inspiring young kids into resilience and I will we be will... running around like a crazy kid <laughs> swimming relay races archery, Perfect. kayaking. There's all kinds of cool stuff that we will be doing. Water balloon fights, my students are talking about. So Excellent. we'll see how that one goes. Well, yeah. We will share that link as well out on social media for people so you can learn Thanks. more about Camp Lloyd, maybe even donate. So, uh, all right. You can follow me on social media. It's at Anger Professor. I'm doing also, I should mention this, I'm doing all sorts of stuff for Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, I got stuff, different stuff on all four platforms every day. So check that out if you would. Gee, I think I answered one of your questions on social media today, in fact. So Ooh. yeah, oh, I just have to go and check that out. But <laughs> it it is really great. I love the variety of uh, the topics that you're talking about this month already. And it's oh, only what the third. Uh, so we have a, a long ways to go. And I really do appreciate you uh, sharing quality and really important information about mental health during uh, mental health May. So thank you for your work there. Oh, thank you so much. And people can find you what at I wish I was just at G. Now I think I might change it. G E O R J E A N N A W D. The big regrets now. <laughs> Excellent. At Georgina W D. She is on uh, Twitter and other places Instagram, Facebook, the works. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Bleese. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Eileen Cupid. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dungess. Keep being amazing. Mm-hmm.